focus on your customer. A lot of startup business owners, you know, myself included, I think you like to th think about your product. You like to think about your service. That's probably the, the, the part of your business that you're most passionate about. But in my view, the way that you actually make a business succeed is start with your customer. Who, who are you going to sell to? What are you going to sell? And actually, why, why would they care? And if you can get those first few customers, actually make a sale, get someone to actually give you money for your product and service, then you know, you're on the way. Try and resist focusing on your product and service in advance of, of having any customers. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I am your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that has grown several businesses into seven and eight-figure companies, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And today we've got another great guest on the podcast. His name is Elliot King, and Elliot is the CEO and co-founder of a PR and marketing firm, Mint Twist. Um, kind of telling you just a quick summary of his journey. So Elliot uh, really started his journey when he was about eight years old, had a personal computer at eight years old, taught himself to, to code and more specifically to make games. And then from, stare, from there, kind of stayed interested in computers throughout his life, was able to be uh, doing a good job as a programmer, worked in Silicon Valley for a period of time, went through the middle of the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust, and then um, went through and found that um, companies weren't actually um, – a lot of companies weren't generating revenue as much during that period of time. So you started, I think, building websites, figuring on SEO, and then from there kind of evolved and pivoted a bit more to the um, marketing and PR firm that you're at today. So that much is a introduction and a quick summary. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Thanks, Devin. It's great to be here. So I gave maybe a very quick introduction or a little bit of an info, but why don't you, uh, why don't you back up and tell us a little bit more about your journey? Yeah, so you quite rightly said my journey started when I was when I was a child. I was sort of eight years old. I was born in the 70s. So I was a child of the 80s. And one Christmas, I think it was about 1984, I got a um, first-generation personal computer. Uh, obviously, it wasn't such a thing as the internet then. So that personal computer shipped with, um, you know, I think one or two games. I think it was ping-pong and tank destroyer so these were really really basic um you know almost single pixel games really and once you get bored of playing those two games you kind of as an eight-year-old child you reluctantly pick up the manual to see what else there is to do with the computer and that's how i discovered programming because there were these listings in the manual that you program your own game so that was my first taste of, of programming so you did the you did the programming for a period of time. First, do you want me to do you want me to keep Go ahead. No, so maybe jump in just no, go, one. go ahead. I was gonna As an eight year old, you know, first of all, kudos because first of all, even today's day and age, which I think programming has gotten a, a considerably a bit easier than what it was likely when you started out. And I said I went I took computer programming while I was in um, college. And I remember we had to go through, you know, we went through binary and then we went through, I don't know, a few more iterations, got to C, C++, and your job and all those. 
And it was, you know, a college-level course. So, first of all, kudos to you for any eight-year-old even figuring out programming at all to make anything work any, whatsoever. But, you know, so then you said you, you stayed – you did computer programming for a period of time, and, they, and you stayed interested. So how did that, starting at eight years old, then trickle over to what you did in high school, college, and then into your business? Yeah, so I, I stayed interested in programming as a child, primarily – through wanting to program games for myself and you know thanks for for saying it was difficult i have to say in some ways computers were possibly more more accessible um when, when they first came out because there was no such thing as windows everything was a command line so the concept of typing things into a computer and typing command structures wasn't quite as uh you know possibly as complex as it might seem Today, but that's an aside. I, I stayed interested in computers and ended up um, taking a computer science degree at university in the, in the UK in, in a city called Leeds. And after graduating, I graduated into a world where there was a, an extreme shortage of computer programmers. Now, I, I know that's to some extent true today, but it was particularly true in that time for a number of reasons, not least because we were just coming up to the year 2000 and there was this worldwide belief that there was a big problem with the way that computers were had been programmed in the switch from moving to 1999 to the year 2000 so the 99 on the end versus the two zeros and there was a lot of computer software that was driving lots of large systems for lots of large companies all over the world that needed to be adapted so that it wouldn't fail once we had to this date change so that essentially created a huge number of job opportunities for people like myself, anyone who had graduated as a computer science or, or who had any experience, frankly, in computer science, found it quite easy to get a job in, in a large number of place, places all around the world. So my passion had always been computers, but my twin passion was traveling. So after working for a few years in London, I took the opportunity to travel with my job and I, and I took the opportunity to take jobs in places like across Europe. So I went to Denmark, I worked in Netherlands, I worked in Switzerland. And in 1999, I was lucky enough to get a job in, in Silicon Valley in the United States. And for me as a, as a relatively young programmer, this was a really exciting opportunity to learn a whole bunch of new skills. At least you'll, you'll say you're lucky until the dot-com boom, or until the dot-com bust. But so you said, hey, you know, and I think when we talked a little about the show, you know, working, it was always kind of a dream to come to the U.S. to work. Silicon Valley has kind of always been that hub of technology, hub of information, especially for the tech industry and the software industry. And then how was it to get here, work, out, you know, for a year or two or whatnot, and then have the dot-com or boom bus and what was that like to kind of go through that and have hey this is always my dream now i've got to figure out what to do next yeah i mean look it was it was an up and down ride that's for sure but the exciting thing for me was that i, I was at the time i was a programmer that had limited understanding of websites i was used to programming databases and things like that so the experience at silicon valley gave me that first taste of websites and web technology and digital technology, internet-based technology. You know, when I was at Google, um, when I was in Silicon Valley at 19, in 1999, Google was like an eight-person company. So it was like really a blip on the radar. And, and so there were all these sorts of companies that were up and coming. And although, yes, the dot-com 
uh, bust, you know, was, 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 a, you know was, was really sad for a lot of companies. Loads of startup companies went under. I firmly believe that it, was, it created that fertile ground that allowed companies like Google and Facebook you know, and many others to sort of become the successes that they are today. So I would say I, I got that taste of, of web technology and the power of the internet, and that really drove the second half of my career. Hmm. Well, I like that. And I, I think that there's an interesting, you know, is what's interesting, you know, because you kind of hit on it of, you know, lot, that bursting of the bubble, you know, allowed some of the companies that are more sustainable to actually come through, right? In the sense that almost to your point, I think the dot-com boom was built, you know, a little bit of a house of cards. You had a whole bunch of companies that were, you know, and I, you know, making very shabby or, you know, shabby websites. They had a little more than a, you know, napkin business plan. And they never really executed much on it. But hey, if they can throw up a website and give a cool sales pitch, they got a whole bunch of money in and hence why it's set up to go to a bus. But, you know, for the companies that were able to come out of that and say, okay, that doesn't work. That's not sustainable. Now, how do we make this sustainable? I think to your point, you know, the Amazons and the Ebays and the Googles that kind of came out from that. You think that's where a lot of them kind of came out during that period of time. They made it through it, made it for a much stronger company. So now you take, you, you work for them. So dot-com burst, you know, the dot-com bubble burst. So where did you go from there? Kind of how did you take that next uh, spade of your, you know, of your journey to uh, continue to grow? So after, after the dot-com bubble burst, I, I left the United States and went back to, to the UK and to Europe and started to focus my career on, on getting jobs in internet technology. So this was, this was developing websites, effectively, or web-based technology. And the big experience, uh, along with getting that taste of web technologies that, that I took away from Silicon Valley was, and you touched on it, Devin, there were a lot of the companies that failed were ones that put up a website. And the assumption was, if we build the website, the, the visitors to that website would just come, would just arrive, which absolutely wasn't the case because there wasn't the problem that a lot of companies had at that time was you could build a website and it could be a brilliant website, but you just, you had a very limited number of ways where you could drive visitors to that website. It was email marketing. But remember, there was no such thing as even Google ads wasn't around at that time, let alone any of the social media advertising capabilities. So the missing link for me was, was the digital marketing capability that would allow websites or website owners to drive traffic to their websites so that they could monetize them. So as well as focusing on web technology, I started to look very, very closely at digital marketing strategy, tools and tactics. And after a few years of, of working in various jobs, I teamed up with a, with a school friend of mine to start our very own digital marketing agency that would enable customers to look to achieve both sides of, of the of both steps that they would need to take in order to get success with their websites and on the internet. So step one would be to design and build the website, but crucially step two would, we would have solutions to allow them to drive relevant visitors to that site so they could effectively monetize what they'd built. So one question on that, because nowadays, you know, most, you've got a few buzzwords or, you know, and some of them have, you know, meaning behind them, you know, you got Google ads, you've got Facebook ads or, you know, social media ads, you've got SEO. And that generally seems like that encapsulates most of the ways that people think about digital marketing. There probably are other good ways, but those are certainly kind of the buzzwords of the industry. 
But when you were starting out before you had Google ads, Facebook ads, social media ads, and, you know, maybe you had some SEO back then, how did you really, you know, I'm just more curious from my point, how did you really start to leverage or, you know, how did you start to drive traffic on the internet? Because to be fair, I was probably, you know, that time in high school going into college, so it wasn't even on my radar. So I'm just curious how you kind of made that or made those uh, initial entrances into the marketplace. Yeah, so in so we started our agency in in 2007, and in 2007 and 2008 and 2009, once you built the website, the primary tactics that you had to use to drive traffic to those sites were was email marketing, you know, and SEO. So SEO, it was it was it was early days for SEO, but anyone who who sort of followed the rules of SEO or took the steps to make a website SEO friendly, found success very, very quickly and to a very large extent. And the main reason for that is because it was so early on and there was a relative lack of understanding around SEO. Anyone who did understand it was, was at an immediate advantage. So and we, we were lucky enough from a UK perspective, we were one of the first agencies in the UK and probably across Europe to really get a handle of SEO. So in those early days, we were delivering quite outstanding results for mm. even small and medium-sized clients who were really dominating search engines for relevant phrases in the UK. So, so now take me through, so you get the early results, you think, you think you've cracked the nut, you figured it out, you're getting great results for people, you know, smaller or medium-sized companies are able to compete, drive lots of traffic. And then you almost have two things come out, right? One is you have social media come out, which changed the landscape a bit. And then you also had Google that changed their algorithm. So, you know, from my limited understanding, it used to be a lot of it was, hey, we'd have a lot of backlinks. We'd have a lot of showing that, that we had authority by backlinking or having links to other websites and pointed back to our website. And then you could kind of crack that nut. And then you had Google that came along and said, well, we don't think that works anymore. We're going to just basically change the whole landscape and do something else that makes it a lot more difficult to figure out. So as that all, all that landscape changed, how did you adapt or how, you know, how did you make those adjustments or say, okay, what we thought we knew, what we thought we figured out no longer is, 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 is as relevant as it used to be. Yeah, look, it's a really good question, Devin. So obviously, I, as a relatively small and growing digital agency, just marketing agency, had a huge impact on us. It had an impact in two ways. Firstly, it had an impact on the finances of our own business because we had essentially built a retainer-based digital marketing model based around SEO. Uh, and, and clients were, were very happy to pay that money because we were developing amazing results for them. And obviously, once Google changed their rules, the, the, our ability to develop to deliver the results that we had been delivering, you know, was, was impacted in some cases quite seriously impacted. So we had the impact on our actual business. We were employing people. We had you know, salary costs that we had to meet. So that was really painful. But then we also had, we also knew that in order to make our business viable for the, for the future, we had to reorganize ourselves, reorganize our service, our products to make sure that they were relevant and they would actually you know, add value to the market. So the, the short answer to your question, it was really, really painful. And it took us about 18 months of re-engineering our service and focusing, as you touched on, it became a more holistic approach to digital marketing. So it still incorporated SEO, but incorporated a lot more content. And crucially, it made use of the social, of the emerging social media channels. So we were 
syndicating content across social media channels and building connections using those networks. And then later on after that, we added the, the actual Google AdWords to the mix. So it became, it became a fuller service, a more rounded marketing service, and in the long run, eventually a more valuable and certainly sustainable service for our, for our clients and therefore for ourselves. So one, or one kind of maybe follow-up question to that is, how did you, how, how did you recognize that the landscape had changed underneath you, and, you know, and, and decide to make those pivots, right? In the sense that, you know, if you have a model that works, you tend to want to keep with that model because you know it works and it will drive income. So, you know, when you have these things that are starting to shift, whether it's Google ads that come out, Facebook ads that come out, social media, you have Google changes algorithm. How did you start to identify, hey, if we don't, it's either adapt or die. And if we don't adapt, we're going to slowly die the death of a thousand cuts because we're going to start being not as efficient. We're not going to get as good results and customers are going to come and go elsewhere. Because you have, you see in the industry, you know, some companies adapt well and they continue in the forefront. And you also have like the Kodaks that nobody ever even has a Kodak camera hardly anymore. And it's not because Kodak wasn't a big company, didn't have a lot of money at one point in market present. It's that they didn't adapt when they could have. So how did you recognize or make those adjustments or decide to make those pivots? Yeah, again, it's a really good question. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of two answers to that question. So to a certain extent, it's reactive. So we because we, we use a lot of tools and we could see the sorts of traffic that was going to our sites, we were, we were noticing this, this downward pressure in, in terms of our ability to generate results. But at the same time, we also had this proactive outlook. So in terms of like, you know, our, our business, our business planning, I would like to think that we've always been relatively proactive. We've updated our, our sort of two-year plan and our five-year plan. And as part of that work, we paid a lot of attention to what Google was saying. Google, to be fair to them, have always been quite fair and open about the direction of travel in which they want to take their search algorithm. So by, by following what Google was saying, by following the, the key constituents within Google, we were able to, to see where we needed to go in order to correctly position our services for our clients. So I, I would say it's a mixture of reacting to, to you know, the changing data that we're seeing in front of our eyes, but also delivering on a sort of proactive plan around where we needed to evolve our own products and services. Okay, no, make, makes good sense. So now we fast forward to today and you guys are, you know, I figured out how to adjust, how to pivot, how to make those, you know, adjustments in order to continue to be successful not that it's not pain and that you know and it is and i think that's one thing that oftentimes gets overlooked is you know you always get kind of the highlight reels of business you always get to hear yeah we figured it out and it was hard but no it really it can be hard it can be difficult when you're looking at we have to lay people off or we're losing customers and we're having to figure things out and we don't know and it's uncertain but you, you made it through all of that and you're saying, okay, we, we, you know, we made our pivots and our adjustments and you, it brings you to where you're at today. So where do you guys kind of, where are you at today and kind of where do you see the next six to 12 months going for you? Yeah, look, it's a great question. So where we've, where we've got today is we've carried on growing our agency in terms of, you know, number of people working with us, size of clients, revenue. We, we're focused on growing our agency, but we're very, very conscious that it's not just about growth. It's about sustainability. So where we see the broader marketing and advertising industry going is that there is going to be a huge focus on, on digital, as there already is, and that focus is likely to continue to grow for a few years yet. But we're a piece of as far as 
looking for some uh, for their functions for their in do you need those clients potential clients into actual clients and retain clients and create awareness but we're very very aware that we need to connect with agencies like PR agencies like communications agencies like branding agencies those agencies big part in raping and the sales friends and organizations need today so we're actively trying to connect ourselves with other relevant agencies that we have that we believe have complementary services so that we can able as we possibly can to our clients because ultimately particularly if you're an agency so focused on providing value 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 and so alongside a growth objective we're we're looking for companies that we can part we can services from clients no and i think that makes you know perfect sense you're saying hey you know what two things I think that are interesting. And one is I think that it's getting, it's getting a bit more niche down in the sense that, you know, before you could be a digital marketing agency or even just a marketing agency and you can kind of be everything to everybody. Now it seems like you almost have to start to specialize a bit. Am I more on the social media side? Am I more on the SEO side? Am I more on the Google AdWords side? Am I more on the, you know, X, Y, and Z side? And then even within industries, you know, as before it was kind of, Hey, you know, how do I do it with the, with the legal industry or the, you know, the finance industry or the consumer goods industry? And it just seems like the expanse of the, the amount of different things you need to coverage is continuing to grow. And so you either have to grow your business and make it all the bigger or to your point, you have to start partnering and let's say, OK, how do we expand our services? How do we hit these different areas? If we can't do it all of ourselves, how do we partner up? So I think that makes complete sense. Well, as we get towards the end of the podcast, and I always have two questions that I ask at the end of each uh, episode, so maybe we'll jump to those now. So first question I always ask is, so what was the worst business you d- decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Well, I do mistakes across business. I don't think anyone who's been in business has not made mistakes. But one of the worst that we've made was... Uh, then go to these markets deal of success um, working with clients across europe and and in north america as well very early on in our in our phase of developing our business out out to, to dubai primarily because there was a and we felt that we could tag on to the back over in up a local office setting up a investing you know hard cash in to try and grow didn't realize wants to take strategy from a country like the uk and pick it up in in any other country frankly but especially one that's quite culturally what we found was we lost a lot of money time lost a lot of focus and it had a massive impact not just in in our local business but in in the business back home now after we we sort of got through that experience we learned that 
when we do go into foreign markets and international expansion you know, was, is, and always will be a major focus of what we're trying to do. But when we do go into a new market, we will do our research so that we understand the local customer, you know, the, the local USPs that we need to be able to compete, the local pricing strategy, the local delivering strategy. Essentially, you have to make a new mini business strategy to, to go and uh, target a new market. And I would say that was a big mistake that we made, but it was also a great lesson that's stood us in good stead since. No, I think that's, and that's, I think, one that if you don't understand your market, and that can be everything from you don't understand the local culture, the location, the people, the business, or it can be as much as you don't understand the industry. And it says, oh, I can do everything to everybody. And I think that the same, you know, the same rule applies is you really do have to understand who your, you know, who your market is, who the people are, and then understand how the, how you need to adapt and, and specialize your message. And if it's a different country, it may be different cultural things. It may be different language things. It may be different, you know, tastes. It may be different ways that people market and everything else. And I think to your point, if you figure that out and you adapt it, you can be much more successful. If you, if you kind of lag behind and you don't figure it out, then you're going to forever not reach or attain the success because it's not going to work nearly as well. So perfect. Second question I always ask is, so if you're talking to someone that's now just getting into startups, just getting into small businesses, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Look, if I'm talking to any startup, what I would say is focus on your customer. A lot of startup business owners, you know, myself included, I think you like to think about your product. You like to think about your service. That's probably the, the, the part of your business that you're most passionate about. But in my view, the way that you actually make a business succeed is start with your customer. Who, who are you going to sell to? What are you going to sell? And actually, why, why would they care? And if you can get those first few customers, and actually make a sale, get someone to actually give you money for your product and service, then you know you're on the way. Try and resist focusing on your product and service in advance of, of having any customers at all. So that would, that would be my number one takeaway. No, I think that's great. And I think that one thing I'd add to that is when you're getting your first customers, the trap that you always fall into is you go sell to friends and family. They always are either one, too nice to give you honest feedback and two, they'll support you not because they think it's a great business or a great product, but because they want, they don't want you to fail. They, you know, they love and care about you. So find customers that aren't just friends and family, but find your real customers and your client base, talk with them, get that feedback and also go out and start selling to them. Well, as people, want, as people want to reach out to you, they want to connect up to you, they want to use your HR or marketing and PR firm, they want to be an employee, they want to pick your brain, they want to be your friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to connect with you? So on the social media channels, I hang out on LinkedIn. My name's Elliot King. It's two L's and two T's, and you can definitely connect with me there. Please feel free to ask me any question there. I'm also on Twitter. For the agency, you can find us at mintstwist.com. All right. Well, I encourage everybody to check you out both on uh, social media as well as uh, check out your website, use your services, get to know you more and um, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Now, for all of you that are um, listeners, um, if you uh, would like to come on and tell your journey to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventivejourneyguest.com. Apply to be on the show. And we'd always love to have you as a guest to hear your journey. If you're a listener, make sure to click subscribe so you can hear all the new episodes as they come out. And lastly, if you are a startup or small business and need help with, or help with patents and trademarks, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law. We're always here to help. Well, thank you again, Elliot. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And it's been uh, great to hear your journey and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.
Thanks so much, David. It's been a great pleasure to be here with you.